Airlines Confidential with Ben Baldanza and Chris Chimes is made possible with the support of Pratt & Whitney, whose GTF engines are redefining aviation. Learn more at pwgtf.com. TA Connections, the industry's most comprehensive airline lodging and crew logistics program, taconnections.com. And Seabury Capital Group, global reach, global scale, seaburycapital.com. We also welcome your business's support. Info at airlinesconfidential.com. Well, another week and another Airlines Confidential. I'm Ben Baldanza, joined as always by my good friend, Chris Chimes. Chris, all good? All good, Ben. Hopefully our listeners all had a good week too. Uh, we're going to feed their airline addiction with some news and chat, which we know they crave. And then we'll have a conversation with Daryl Jenkins, our guest. So let's get going. First up, I've got to ask the guy who has run marketing and has also run an airline. What did you think of the Turkish Airlines Super Bowl ad? Uh, both the production value and the message and also, do you see an ROI opportunity on a $12 million investment like this? It's great that you're asking this, Chris, because like many of our listeners, I bet I watch the Super Bowl, mostly for the game, but also watch the ads. And when that ad came on, I watched it. I looked over at my wife and son and said, why did they do that? <laughs> 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 because, you know, not everyone knows who Turkish is. Not everyone knows that Turkish flies to so many places. And in fact, Istanbul is a reasonably convenient place to connect, a nice place to connect, actually, for a lot of long haul places you could go into Africa, into Asia, into other parts of Europe and such. So wanting the Super Bowl watching market to know that they were there, that they're running, that they fly to all these places is a great idea. However, Turkish gets most of their business because they undercut the big alliances, the sky teams, the one worlds, the stars, and it's usually cheaper to connect through Istanbul than through a Frankfurt or a Heathrow or something. So are they thinking maybe that with a higher presence, they'll be able to price up a bit? Or are they going to keep playing this game of it's cheaper to fly through Istanbul and so that's the kind of traffic they attract. They just want more people to know. It's just hard for me to imagine that whatever it costs them to produce that, plus having to pay the Super Bowl, as you said, the $12 million to run that, that they're ever going to get a positive return on that. On the other hand, they're never going to really know either because they're going to say, well, look, we had a great summer. And the marketing people will say, it's because we ran that ad, right? <laughs> and the pricing people will say, it's because we had a price advantage. And, and the schedulers will say, because we had all the right flight times, right? And you won't really know. So, you know, we're all hoping this summer is a really high volume summer for the world industry. Most signs are pointing to it could be. So Turkish going out up front and saying, we're here, fly us, not a bad idea whether the Super Bowl was the right place, whether they are really going to get a return on that. I'm skeptical though, Chris. Well, first off, I promise you, Ben and I didn't coordinate this conversation and that I only told him I was going to ask him about it, but I didn't ask what his point of view was. So yeah, this really is pretty spontaneous. I guess you could say it worked in that people are talking about it, but 
it's probably just the geeky people like us who care about airlines. I don't think like the masses are talking about it. Like they're talking about the Colin Joe's Scarlett Johansson ad or the Uber Eats ad or, or the Larry David FTX ad. So, I mean, I don't think it like set off some kind of cultural chatter that a lot of Super Bowl ads aim to do. I, I kind of had the same reaction. What was the point? I, I guess to, escalate their their standing in the in the big leagues of airlines it was a nice ad it was a feel-good ad but it wasn't a memorable ad except for us talking about it i guess so i I defer to you on the roi opportunity it just kind of was okay there's that i mean there are companies that just decide not just airlines there are companies who say we're going to make a big splash and show up at the super bowl and they all make bets. Obviously, there are bigger companies that the Super Bowl is a big bet for them, but they also advertise big multiples of that all through the year. And then there are some who say, this is going to be our play. So to that end, you know, they tried it. We'll see whether it changes anything for Turkish in terms of their positioning. But my guess is it was more feel good for their employees than anything else. Then Alaska Airlines made some news this past week with their plan for a subscription model pricing plan. I'm not sure it's completely new. It's a new version of something tried before, I think, but I'll defer to you, Ben. Years ago, American Airlines had their AirPass program. And years and years ago, I remember as a college student, Eastern Airlines had this amazing 21-day pass, almost like a Eurail pass, where you could fly anywhere in their network for 21 days for a flat fee. So as a college student, we loved that product for summer vacation. We literally flew all over the country, you know, the Bahamas, wherever else. So Ben, what's different about this? And what do you think the prospects are for success? I thought this was an interesting announcement by Alaska. And to an extent, I applaud them for this, for doing anything to sort of, almost like we just said with Turkish, to support people getting back flying again and recognizing that airlines are a great way to fly and such. Yet, I'm also very skeptical of this program. There's a reason that American Airlines doesn't do the AirPass anymore. And there's lots of reasons Eastern Airlines isn't here. I wouldn't blame their flight pass on that. But this program is you pay a monthly rate you basically lock in a price for 12 months worth of travel. So you pay them whether you travel or not, but while you're paying them, you can take lots of flights. My problem with these kinds of programs, Chris, is what insurance companies tend to call adverse selection. Adverse selection means the people who buy your product are exactly the ones you don't want to buy your product. And so Alaska may be thinking this might stimulate a a lot of new travel, might stimulate a lot of new college student travel, like you talked about how you used to use these kind of programs. But more likely, it's going to be people who fly Alaska anyway or would likely have flown Alaska anyway that are going to buy this because this is a cheaper way for them to fly than if they just bought their tickets for their business or whatever. So my guess is they're going to dilute more revenue, meaning people who would have paid them more are going to pay them less, than they're going to stimulate, meaning new people will fly that wouldn't have flown. And I don't know if that's true, 
but my days in pricing and revenue management suggest that these kinds of programs, as fun as they sound and as how great they are to announce and as how appealing they may seem to customers, when you look at who actually buys them and how they're used, there's a reason that these products come and go and aren't a mainstay of airline pricing. Mm -hmm. So I hope Alaska has good luck with this one. I hope a lot of people buy it. I hope it generates a lot of new travel. But I also think they run the risk that they're going to leave some money on the table because people who would have paid them a lot more to fly in Alaska are going to buy this pass and just fly for a little less. I think that's fair. I mean, look, the Alaska team sitting up there in Seattle and I got Costco on one side and Amazon on the other side, both with very successful versions of some kind of subscription-based relationship with customers. And they're probably thinking, how do we make this work for airlines too? So, you know, it's it'll be interesting to see the, the consumer reaction. Like you said, people are talking about it. We're talking about it. The media is covering it. We'll keep an eye on it and we'll revisit this in a few months, I think. Yeah. And if I could say, Chris, lots of businesses are looking more towards subscription-based models, right? You can have food delivered to your house every month by paying a certain amount per month, right? And you can have clothes delivered to your house by paying a certain amount per month and you pick the clothes and you can get a massage every month, you know, by paying a subscription model. There's lots of businesses that like that recurring revenue model. The issue with the Alaska program is they're selling their core product with that subscription. You compare that, for example, to the Spirit Fair Club, where customers pay them a recurring revenue, an annual subscription fee, or a Costco membership, where you pay an annual fee to shop at the store, but you still pay when you go to the store at Costco, or you still have to buy the tickets on Spirit. What those subscription fees do is give you access to the real low prices at Costco or to the lowest prices Spirit sells. So that in my mind, that's a cleverer and smarter way to run a subscription recurring revenue model than say, I'll just price it at one point and here's my core product. Well, Airlines Confidential is brought to you each week with the support of Seabury Capital Group, the specialty finance and investment banking firm boasting an impressive roster of clients in aviation, aerospace and defense, and financial services and technologies. Seabury Capital Group's widely respected team has superior industry knowledge along with state-of-the-art analysis, technology and solutions, and an unmatched depth of relationships with decision makers in industry, finance and government. Explore their global reach and scale at seaburycapital.com. We'd also like to thank Pratt & Whitney, a world leader in aircraft engines, helicopter engines, and auxiliary power units. The Pratt & Whitney GTF engine is delivering industry-leading sustainability, matured dispatch reliability, and world-class operating costs. Now with the GTF Advantage engine for the Airbus A320neo family, the best is getting even better. Learn more at pwgtf.com slash advantage. Ben, finally on the news and current events front, I really hate to keep going back to the subject because I feel like we're picking on them, but we're not doing anything. This is of their own doing, I'm sad to say. I'm talking about Boeing 
The FAA has approved a plan to resume the delivery of 787 Dreamliners, but they will not hand over certification of each specific aircraft to Boeing. Instead, FAA inspectors will sign off on the delivery. So while this defines the path for the resumption of deliveries of the aircraft, it's going to be a slower path. And already American has announced some trimming of international service for this summer because of expected continued delays in Dreamliner deliveries. So what's the Ben take? Well, my take, Chris, is that this is obviously a direct result of the 737 MAX crashes and the investigations that went on as a result of that. And among the many things that came out from that investigation was that the FAA as a regulator was a little bit too close to Boeing and just accepted Boeing's view on a number of certification issues. And they kind of got their hands slapped in that investigation on that. So I think this is a direct reaction to that. And they're saying, look, Now we're going to look at every one of these 787 Dreamliners and we're going to inspect them. We're not going to accept Boeing's view that it was done correctly. I think it's probably a good thing for safety. The FAA takes kind of a zero tolerance issue on safety, which they need to as the safety overseers. So while it'll slow down the deliveries a bit, I don't think that's going to be significant and it's probably good. My guess is that somewhere between just accepting Boeing's view and inspecting every single plane that comes off the line ourselves is where the FAA will ultimately come out on the whole certification and approval process. But sort of the first big thing they have to inspect coming out of the sort of debacle of the 737 MAX certification doesn't surprise me that they would go this heavy handed on this. And I think the slowness in deliveries is a small thing to pay to ensure each one of these planes is safe. But I think this is an evolution of how we see the relationship between big manufacturers like Boeing and Airbus work with their primary regulators around the world. Part of me wondered if at some level behind the scenes to break the log jam, to get the deliveries started again. Did someone at Boeing even suggest this as a path forward? Although I, I would think that the precedent of that would make a lot of people uncomfortable. But you know, they've got to get these aircraft back out on the line and get the deliveries going. Um, they've got this Netflix uh, documentary that's breaking, I think, this week about the 737 crashes. So they've got to get back to business and they've got to just get back to what they have historically done very well. And so like you, I think this is the result of a lot of things over the past three or four years, but probably the best path forward for the time being. That's right, Chris. Well, we'll be right back in a moment with our conversation with airline economist and commentator, Daryl Jenkins. Don't go away. Promotional support for Airlines Confidential comes from thearchive.net, the hub of the history of commercial aviation with vintage timetables, route maps, brochures, historic flights, terminals, airplane cabins, virtual tours of airline maintenance and training facilities, models, safety cards, and menus, plus special flights and events. Thearchive.net is now boarding. Welcome back to Airlines Confidential, and welcome to this week's guest, Daryl Jenkins. Daryl, where are we talking to you from today? By the pond, the fireplace? Yeah, by the pond. Uh, welcome to Pemberley on Pond. 
There we go. So tell us about your aviation background and what you do right now in the aviation space. Well, about just after the era of the dinosaurs, I became a travel agent. Uh, and that was my uh, uh, entry into the uh, uh, travel industry. I was a professor at George Washington University and one of the co-founders of the Aviation Institute there. And uh, being in Washington, it gave me uh, the opportunity to interact with the media quite a bit. We uh, did some things with the White House, uh, with both the uh, Bush and the Clinton administrations, and uh, I've written a number of books, Handbook of Airline Economics, is probably my best known, and now I'm spending most of my time in uh, with uh, commercial drones. That's great, Daryl. You're an economist also, and you didn't say that in your intro, but you are. So how would you rate the U.S. airlines on an economic efficiency scale? <laughs> I was afraid you were going to ask that. Well, I think if anything good came out <laughs> of uh, COVID, it's that we don't have to listen to uh, uh, people say that the airlines will no longer lose money. Airlines an inherently unstable business. It doesn't take much to uh, throw it into chaos, and it doesn't take much for uh, all airlines to, uh, worldwide to uh, be disrupted. Uh, their operations uh, over the last uh, couple of years have not been that good. Under COVID, they've been worse. Uh, and I wish uh, some of my old friends like Bob Baker uh, who uh, passed away 20-some years ago. Uh, I wish he were back and helping us run operations again. So, Daryl, you ventured out of the world of academia to uh, actually get into the airline business. You were involved with MaxJet a while ago, an all-business class transatlantic airline that didn't work out. Um, what was your experience with that, and why have these kind of models failed, do you think? Well, uh, that was actually uh, started up by one of my students, I guess I got out of academia uh, somewhere around that time frame uh, after uh, MaxJet. You know, that's when all the bankruptcies and the uh, mergers began. Uh, and uh, I pretty much worked for all of the major airlines during the uh, bankruptcies and mergers. And then uh, I think it was about 2013, uh, AUVSI, which is the trade group for drones, came to me and asked me to do economic impact of uh, integrating drones into the airspace. At that time, I knew nothing about drones whatsoever. Um, Bijan Vasig, who teaches at Embry-Riddle, and I did that together. It was really enjoyable. And it was just kind of fun to be in something which was new and disruptive. I remember back to the 80s when I was first, well, in the 70s is when I was a travel agent, but when I really began doing work with the airlines was in the early 1980s. Remember how exciting it was then after the airlines were deregulated, how every day we were learning new things, uh, yield management, revenue management, all these were new concepts. Uh, Southwest was coming online at that time. It was disruptive. In the early 2000s, you had JetBlue, which was disruptive. You had Southwest. But after that, after the uh, consolidation, um, most of the fun went out of the airline industry. Then it became, uh, that was supposed to be a steady state business. After that, it turned out not to be. And uh, drones are disruptive, and I'm having a lot of fun with that right now. Well, you know, all airline geeky people like to do crazy things, right, Daryl? And <laughs> I have the uh, experience of over one weekend flying EOS Airlines from New York to the UK and then coming back about 12 hours later on MaxJet. 
and we just thought it would be a real fun thing to fly those two all business class airlines on a whirlwind trip. And then six months later, neither airline was flying again. So that was kind of fun. Uh, that was the year of the uh, financial um, uh, markets tanked. And one week we had good loads and the next week we had zero. <laughs> and it really went, <laughs> you know, it really went that quickly. And uh, after that, there was no recovery. I mean, we recovered from the uh, financial markets, but if you didn't have a large capital base at that time, uh, waiting out a year is uh, pretty much uh, an, an eternity. So none of those it seems like the EOS was one. It seems like there was another one out there too. I'm forgetting about now. Silverbird or something. There was Silverjet too Silverjet. from the UK side. Yes, yes. So um, uh, airlines are inherently unstable. It's a very tough business. Uh, ben, you did uh, uh, an incredible job with Spirit, making them one of the uh, great airlines of the world. So uh, it can be done. It is difficult. Well, let's get into the new disruption that you mentioned, your work on the economics of commercial drone activity, which is really leading edge and it's driving policy decisions. Yeah. A few weeks ago, we had former FAA Administrator Michael Huerta on the show. And one of the things he told us was that air traffic control technology has to improve to support the new needs for drones, EV tolls, and more. Do you agree with him? Yeah, and it's going to be a different type of uh, uh, air traffic control. Uh, I mean, at the end of the day, uh, you know the FAA is going to control everything in the air. But I think what's going to be different about this is that it's going to all be financed privately. It will be lower altitude. Think of the FAA 10,000 above and think about... uh, uh, UTM, as many of us call it, or AAM, Advanced Air Mobility, as being uh, below 10,000 feet, having a different set of um, both hardware and software for uh, managing that. Daryl, I've dropped off the invitation list, but I remember you used to have these airline dork dinners <laughs> out at your uh, your farm. Uh, I, I don't know if you still do, but can you tell our listeners about these and how you came up with the idea? And did anything really creative or substantive come from these discussions? Well, I have to be uh, very careful about what I say. The airline dork dinners were uh, excessive amounts of fun. We had the first one September 6, 2001. And, you know, of course, a week later, the world's changed. Uh, At that one, we had 200 people out here at the farm. Um, We spent the night uh, discussing uh, air traffic management, believe it or not. Uh, over the next uh, 10 years, we continued to have them. Uh, every year, they got smaller and smaller. Then one year, we had uh, Dorkfest here. Uh, we had 200 people. And the next year, we had 400 people. <laughs> so um, uh, that kind of uh, was in line, I-, I guess, with some of my uh, uh, things. Uh, the airline industry will always be of interest to me. I've done some work in it lately. I'm working on a uh, expert system for uh, uh, network planning for airports, not airlines, for airports, which uh, will be released probably in another six or seven months, uh, which has been uh, fun working on. I would love to write another book on airlines on networks. Now, the reason I didn't do that in the 1990s, it was just... um, uh, The data wasn't available, and it was uh, more difficult at that time to manage uh, large databases. Now managing very, very large databases is 
no longer a problem and uh, we have Boku uh, data. So some the airline networks have always interested me. They always will interest me. And I think there's another book probably in a couple years coming down the line on that. I just finished uh, uh, Drone Economics, which you can buy on Amazon. And uh, my, my uh, personal plug there. And I'm working on a three-volume book with uh, Clint Oster on the handbook, Global Handbook of Military Drones, which is very interesting. It's the first time I've been involved in uh, 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 anything military. Uh, I'm enjoying this about as much as anything I've ever done. Right now with drones, we're at the point that in the next uh, three to five years, we're going to be doing things with beyond visual line of sight. And it's really at beyond visual line of sight where you can start flying them longer, where economics and the true disruption uh, begins. So right now with visual line of sight, you can open new markets and you lower costs for certain things. Uh, It's taking off certainly in real estate, construction, things like that. But for infrastructure and uh, precision agriculture and things like that, we need beyond visual line of sight, and it's going longer than two miles, and we need to go from one to end drones per pilot. So uh, beyond visual line of sight opens up disruption, but it's not truly economic yet. Then when we can have one pilot flying multiple drones, it becomes economic. Now with the uh, advanced air mobility and uh, uh, Jetson-type flying cars and stuff like that, the economics on that is a little less clear to me. There are always two issues. One is economies of scale, so you have to get production up to the point where costs are low, and then you have to have the opportunity cost is, is what's your next best available alternative. So if you want to go out to the airport, it's a taxi or an Uber. And so if the price of going advanced air mobility is twice that, uh, the economics aren't there, and it's it's doubtful it will take off. So those are some of the economic issues that are uh, out there right now with uh, advanced air mobility and drones. So drones are fun. They're not yet truly disruptive, but they will become disruptive. And when we can fly beyond visual line of sight and fly, one pilot can fly more than one drone at a time, that's when the economics start kicking in. And that's when you'll see truly disruptive things happening with uh, drones. Well, it's great that we have dorks thinking about this like you, Daryl. <laughs> well, we'll be right back with our conversation with Daryl Jenkins. But first, let's pause to thank TA Connections, which provides an intelligent, integrated, and flexible suite of applications that allow airlines to efficiently book hotels for crew. Learn more at taconnections.com. TA Connections is a fleet core company and the world's leading provider of technology and services for crew and passenger logistics management. Well, Daryl, tell us a little bit about the American Aviation Institute, what it does and what your role is there. Uh, The American Aviation Institute is something we created while we were at George Washington uh, University. We had an enormous amount of fun with it. We did a lot of things. Uh, Our biggest thing that we did was... uh, uh, working with the White House during uh, after the downing of TW-800 and ValueJet. Remember, U.S. Air had that crash that year. And so all the things that we were able to do with the White House, we ended up having some real fun uh, programs that we did at uh, George Washington after that, a master's certificate in aviation management. We did quite a bit with aviation safety as well, especially with foreign countries. So 
for about four or five years, we had a grant with the FAA where we trained uh, countries that um, where the regulators were what we would consider subpar to be better regulators. So you might have some countries that had good airlines, but they didn't have a good regulatory structure. So we worked with them for uh, a number of years. So it was uh, an enormous amount of fun. As I'm thinking back on these things, I'm going back to Chris' previous question. might be fun to have another dork fest out here soon. It's, what is it right now? It's February, um, maybe late May we might do something, Chris. Uh, let's, let's stay in touch on that. It might be fun to get a bunch of uh, uh, aviation dorks out here and some drone dorks and uh, have a nice afternoon together. Uh, ben, uh, Chris, as you know, Ben was at one. Uh, matter of fact, if I remember right, young man, uh, you added a new fee after that. <laughs> <laughs> it's, a, it's a fee to fly for anyone who's attended one of you. <laughs> I'm always ready to have a party and uh, uh, if we can uh, have a good excuse and uh, we can make the argument to my wife, who is the arbitrator on all these things, I'd be more than happy to invite (laughs) you all out for an afternoon here in the country. Yeah, we could broadcast from... uh from Daryl's Dorkfest. So, Daryl, you talked you talked a bit about your latest book on drones, yeah. um, but you you have several books on various aspects of airline economics. Do you believe these works have driven positive change for the industry in some ways? Well, the, the handbook of airline economics. Uh, when we did that, I think it was nineteen ninety five ninety six. We did that when uh, Eddie Pinto was at Ab Daily and McGraw Hill was the publisher. And uh, that book for about four or five years was ubiquitous and about everywhere I went, anywhere in the world, I met people who had that book. So uh, that, that had a, uh, went through two or three editions and maybe eight or nine printings. Uh, it's the best selling book I've ever done. Oh, I certainly do miss the royalties from it. Once considered redoing it, but uh, um, not close enough to do one that comprehensive. Uh, it's interesting doing an editing book, an edited book, Chris. So, the first one we did, we had I had to work with 120 different authors. <laughs> so, you know, some of the chapters have three or four authors, and some of the writers didn't have a clue about writing. And one of them, in particular, I made rewrite this chapter 20 times. And then you're working with a lot of airline CEOs, all of whom wanted chapters in the book, and they didn't want to be edited at all. Uh, it was an interesting experience. Um, since then, I have not done an edited book. <laughs> There's probably a reason for that. Uh, I do enjoy writing books. It gives you an opportunity to get into an area in depth and uh, uh, explore it extensively. And now we have so much data about everything that uh, uh, it's, it's a lot of fun. The one thing we don't have data about is my favorite topic, and that's drone economics, and we have very little data on that, but uh, uh, you can model the engineering process, and that's what we're doing in a lot of things with that now. Well, Daryl, you've influenced the life of many, many students through your college teaching. Are there any students of whom you're especially proud in terms of <laughs> what they've gone on to do from your tutelage? Uh, they're not. I mean, I love them all. I don't remember ever having a student I didn't like. 
And the, the whole thing of being a professor to uh, bright young kids is trying to find a niche for them. Uh, in the 90s and up to probably 210 when I was influential, had more influence in the airline industry. That time I could call an airline CEO and pretty much guarantee a kid a job. Um, Josh Marks uh, was a lot of fun. Uh, cranky Brett Snyder, <laughs> he, he was fun. J- uh, John Ostrower, uh, Mark Thorpe. I mean, there, there's a whole bunch of these kids. Mike Miller, uh, Ben Baldanza was a student of mine. I don't know if you know him or not. Oh, no, Ben Baldanza came in my class and gave <laughs> lectures. That's how it was. I was his pupil. Um, <laughs> Uh, you know, they were fun and it, and it was exciting. And we, uh, at the end of the term, we did the uh, dreaded silhouette test. I don't know if uh, either of you remember doing that before. There was in the 1980s a movie called Diner. It was a breakout movie with uh, Michael Rourke and um, Kevin Bacon, a whole bunch of people. And in that movie, one of the actors uh, was engaged to a girl and he wouldn't marry her until she took a football trivia test. And it was real hard. So when I met the princess and before we got married, and this all shows you what a, uh, <laughs> a, a patient woman I married, I made her take a uh, trivia quiz on airlines. <laughs> and she had to be able to spot uh, the different airlines and know them by their silhouettes. And she had to know all the operating characteristics. She had to be able to um, pass a a flight test, you know, the pilot exam and all of these things. And so over time, I I thought if my, I made my wife do that, I'd have to make my students do that as well. And so uh, over time it became known as the dreaded silhouette test became like a hundred pages long. And I remember the uh, airport managers who would come into my class, they would hear about that. And I would send copies out to them and have them take it. And uh, it was interesting to see how many of them could pass it. But uh, 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 teaching airline economics uh, in the 1990s up until the 2000s, even after 2001, after 9-11, was an enormous amount of fun and a great part of my career. And are you saying that Cranky Flyer got his crankiness from you? <laughs> you know, I love that boy. Uh, <laughs> I remember Mark Thorpe brought, uh, came to me. He was my research assistant at the time. And Mark came and said, boy, and we got this new kid who's coming in, and I think you're going to like him. And Brett walked in the class the first night, and he had this swagger about him, which I will never forget. And... Uh, you know, and in, in in these kids, they would come into you, and, and Brett had a background. And all of these kids, he and Josh Marks and Thorpe and John Ostrow, all of them would push in class. Uh, Josh Hochberg, I forget, Joshy, he runs an FBO out in California. I mean, all of these kids were so much fun. Uh, I'm in contact with most of them. Josh Hochberg, I just talked to him a week ago. Um, he, he loves this so much that uh, uh, he bought an FBO and, of course, uh, he bought a Mooney and then he went up to, uh, I think, a Cessna 370 and then he bought a, a jet, <laughs> you know, for his own personal travel. Um, so all of, all of these kids uh, bring back nothing but uh, 
on, on my, my side, they bring back fond memories. I'm sure on their side, it's nightmarish, but on my side, it's all fondness. So Daryl, back when there was a very active um, news media group covering the airlines every day at major publications and the networks and things that could always count on you for a pithy quote or some very succinct observations. How would you rate the airline industry's uh, response to the pandemic these past two years? Well, um, those days when we were working together, Chris, were interesting. In those days, we had an airline press. So you had, uh, you know, people like Don Phillips and others, you know, Dan Reed, um, What's his name down in Dallas who just retired, um, who wrote for the Wall Street. Scott McCartney. Yeah, Scott. All of these guys. Lisa Stark at ABC. You know, you had people who actually knew what they were talking about. That that was half the fun of working with the press at that time is that she had a press who knew what the heck was going on. And then at GW once a year, we would run a uh, airline economics class for reporters coming in. Now you don't have any of that. You have a bunch of whack jobs out there commenting on things who don't know what the crap they're talking about. And so that makes uh, an airline's response more difficult. The problem I had with the pandemic, Chris, is this in the airlines. Um, We've been through 9-11. We went through SARS in this thought that was out there by airline CEOs and unions both saying that we would never lose money again is putting the last 20 years of history behind us and saying that that can't happen again. And so these guys went out there, they were buying their own stock back there and, you know, and, and doing all of these really crazy things when they should have been solidifying their balance sheet. So we have some airlines out there still who, even though they've been uh, through bankruptcy, uh, who don't have really good balance sheets and aren't posed to really compete in the future, and then you, anytime you go through these things like this and you have cutbacks, then you have the, the pilots and the flight attendants and the me- mechanics all take cutbacks. And every time they take a cutback, I mean, we've been doing this for 30 years now, they become more angry and it becomes more difficult on passengers then and things get even more disrupted. So it seems like we're in this kind of endless cycle of uh, we, we think that there's a rosy future when the truth is, is that uh, if we've learned anything from the last 20 or 30 years of, of watching airlines, is that it's an inherently unstable business. And so what we really need to be doing is bulking up on cash for the next crap thing that happens to us. And what they all do is once we get by the current crap thing that happens to us, they go out and they act stupid again and uh, waste their money. And uh, it just kind of pisses everybody off and the cycle repeats forever. So uh, it, it's the, the issue isn't whether or not they uh, handle the pandemic better. It's have we learned anything from the last 30 years of history? And the last 30 years of history is teaching us that we're in an inherently unstable business and that if we have a good time, uh, what we should do with, during the good times is we should bulk up on cash and uh, pay down debt because uh, we need to do that so that the next time something happens that we don't have to go hand in hat to the government asking for bailouts. Was that too harsh? No, that's not too harsh. And But it's a nice lead in to our last question here, which is, are there any specific airline related policies you think would make the industry either more competitive or more efficient or just better for customers? 
Wow, what a what a great question, Ben. This type of question I expect from you, young man. I, I don't believe that uh, regulation is going to make things better for anybody. What I think is uh, having uh, some wisdom in the airline industry at the uh, executive level, uh, both the management and unions uh, will make the uh, industry better for uh, uh, everyone. And I think the key to that is uh, having an awareness of history and where we've been and uh, where we're going. And it's uh, better to be a, a tad moderate in our plans, uh, not overspend and uh, have bunches of cash in reserve. I guess my thought has been, I don't depend on the government to make my life better. Well, thank you very much, Daryl, for a real inspiring and entertaining talk here. I'm sure our listeners are really going to enjoy this. It was my pleasure. And uh, I love both of you boys. And uh, let's get together this week and plan another dork fest. I'm all up for it. I, I love the fact that he calls us boys, Ben. So I don't know, I, I don't know how all that makes you, Daryl. Makes me a tad older than It's great to talk man. to you. Uh, we'll be right back with more Airlines Confidential. The Airlines Confidential podcast is now available on Apple, Google, iHeart, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Pandora, Spotify, TuneIn, and many more. Use your favorite podcasting app with just one click at airlinesconfidential.com. Welcome back to Airlines Confidential. Thanks to Daryl Jenkins for fielding our questions. Now we'll take some of yours. Remember, you can email us at questions at airlinesconfidential.com or visit our website at airlinesconfidential.com and follow the prompts. We're available on all the major podcast platforms, and you can ask Amazon Alexa or Google Assist to turn us on. Just say, play the Airlines Confidential podcast. Ben, first up, a question from someone who just wants to identify himself or maybe herself as Joe Pilot, or let's call him or her Josephine Pilot. Guys, if you were an airline CEO, would you be interested in a freight partnership like what Sun Country has with Amazon? Why or why not? Demand for air freight will continue to be bullish, especially when freighter ships will be forced to continue to reduce emissions by 13% as of January 2023, further constraining supply. Ben? Good question, Joe, or Josefina, or whatever. (laughs) Um, You know, what Sun Country did is they created this relationship with Amazon in the depths of the pandemic when they were flying almost no people. And for a quarter or more, basically carried almost no people on their planes, but carried lots of packages. And they were one of the carriers to be profitable even during the real height of the pandemic, long before leisure travel started coming back. So I applaud them for being that flexible and thinking of that. And now they realize the value of that. So they're going to keep doing it somewhat. Whether that's for everyone, I'm not sure. Airlines make money by turning planes at the gate quickly, meaning once the plane gets into the airport and parks at the jet bridge, people get off, people get on, you refuel, you do any service you need, you get out again. Having to add cargo to that mix could delay that and make the operations more complicated at the airport. Also requires a different sales function maybe, maybe even requires different routings of airplanes based on, you know, if the cargo is going exactly where you're flying the passengers, that might work. Many big airlines, big legacy airlines and 
global airlines have cargo divisions that use the bellies, especially of their wide body airplanes and sell a lot of cargo. A lot of that is containerized, meaning it's brought to the airport in a container and then loaded on the airplane. The airplane has to be capable of taking that container, however. For an airline like Sun Country, you know, their bellies aren't capable of handling containers. So they put the package in the bellies, they put them in the seats. That's what they were doing when they weren't carrying passengers. And it's worked well for them. Partnerships like this are good. Airlines generally had partnerships with the post office to carry mail in this kind of way. And they put bags of mail on the belly and such. So airlines understand this world. But it's a different business than carrying passengers. So the airline that is going to do this is going to have to accept that I'm going to be participating in both businesses, carrying passengers and carrying freight. And I'm going to be competing with airlines who carry freight for a living, like a FedEx or a UPS, and probably know how to do it better or at least more efficiently. And I'm not going to let it complicate or get in the way of my passenger delivery. So it's a tough decision for airlines to decide to do this in a big way. Again, I like what Sun Country did. Ideas of using airline capacity to carry cargo on flights they're already flying, maybe that's enough to do a deal with an Amazon or continue doing to do a deal with the post office and such. But getting into the whole freight business with a commercially scheduled airline is a complicated thing. And I don't think you'll see this become more than it's already been historically. And then Joe had a second question. It's also a good one. So we're going to give him some additional airtime this week. From the perspective of a flight crew employee, How would you approach choosing an employer based on the information that's available today? For better or worse, our seniority system marries us to our employer, and changing to another airline means starting over at the bottom of pay and quality of life. Are legacy airlines truly too big to fail, or could they still go the way of a Pan Am or Eastern? Are LCCs and their growth nationwide worth the possible volatility and stability due to the lack of relative scale? Many pilots who are already established at LCCs are trying to educate themselves on the trade-offs of established seniority and pay versus a legacy, quote, dream job. But the sacrifices in pay and seniority make the decision difficult. Joe, this is a fantastic question. Your first question was really good. This one's fantastic. (laughs) And you bring up so many issues here. The seniority system that marries you to your employer is obviously a collectively bargained union thing, right? The union that you work for or that you you pay to be represented by sort of is the one that pushes that seniority vision. There are other roles in the airline, like if you're in accounting and you're a really good accountant you can leave your airline and go to another airline or another company and get paid more to be an accountant, right? Potentially, or an IT person or something. But in the roles that are represented by unions, the seniority does change you to an extent. When I was at Spirit, 
we found that one of the biggest attractions we had for pilots was the fact that they could get upgraded to the captain's seat much more quickly at Spirit because of our growth than if they went to a legacy airline. So they would look at going to work for an American United, being on reserve for a while, flying right seat for a while. And even though eventually in their career, they'd be a captain, maybe even a captain flying big wide bodies to Europe and Asia. I assume that's the definition of dream job you meant in your in your question. But that's much later in your career at a place like that. At a place like an LCC that's growing very quickly, you move from that first officer scale onto the captain scale much earlier in your career. So while the rates may not be the same as at American, United, or Delta, how much you're actually getting paid in year three, four, and five of your job might actually be much closer to what you'd be getting paid at one of the big airlines because there you'd either be on reserve or flying right seat, whereas at the low-cost carrier, you're the captain of the plane and flying on that scale. So I really think it comes down to why do you want the job? And if you want to fly a lot, then LCCs, I think, are a great place to grow and a great place to start because even though they have relatively lack of scale, you're going to be flying mostly the same airplane, mostly domestic or near-term international into the Caribbean, Central America, you know, two to four hour kind of routes for the most part. If you're comfortable that that's what you're going to do for the most part, those can be really good, stable jobs where you're going to become a captain quickly and you're going to move up the seniority list really quickly because the airlines are growing so fast. If you say, look, I'm willing to invest 10, 15, maybe even 20 years not having a lot of control over my schedule, flying when the airline tells me to fly as a reserve or By the time I get to bid for my flights, there's nothing I really want to do, so I have to take these. But eventually, you'll move up the scale and you'll be in great control of your life and reach that sort of dream job kind of idea. But it's going to take a long time. So I really think it depends on what you want out of the job. You can have good, stable career jobs at big airlines and at LCCs. At LCCs, the jobs are going to be more of the same every day, but quick moves up the scale and becoming a captain quickly. At the big airlines, you'll have more variety. You'll ultimately get type rated on more airplanes, right? And eventually maybe fly all over the world, but it takes a long time to do that. Great question, Joe. And whichever choice you and all your colleagues decide to do, I hope you have fun with it. Yeah, it was a great question. I mean, and there are so many cultural and sociological issues embedded in that question in that we've got a, a new generation coming into the workforce that are making decisions on a completely different level with regard to what's important to them. So quality of life, is this a company I admire and want to work for? What is their position on global warming and doing good in society and all kinds of things that younger people are looking much more carefully at when they choose their employer. So you got that overlay. And then I have to wonder too, Ben, as the pilot shortage becomes more and more of a reality, how much do the big network carriers use that opportunity at the major airline for the regional 
pilots as an incentive to stick with the regional airline and flow through to the main line. There are flow through agreements at different levels with different regional partners right now, but I think that's an untapped resource with regard to how major airlines recruit and keep people at regional airlines versus jumping to an LCC, for example. That makes a lot of sense, Chris. And I I think that's a really good point. Clearly, the relationship between the big airlines and their regional partners is evolving. I believe that at some point we may even see consolidation among some of the independent regionals, largely driven by the need to sort of maybe have more leverage both with the big partners, but also on the hiring standpoint. So Ben, as we pivot to finer wine, as we wrap up this week's show, it's your turn to arbitrate. And since we just wrapped up the football season for the year, we're going to send this complaint through that has to do with football. It's from Josh in Las Vegas. Do not trust Allegiant Airlines to honor their package deals. I booked two separate packages through Allegiant for hotel and Raiders tickets. Both times, they sent worse tickets than the tickets advertised in the packages I purchased. Online chat customer service doesn't work, and the phone lines say it's two plus hours to talk to someone. Thank God I'm not dealing with a flight issue, and I'm not happy. You know, when I read this complaint, Chris, I said, this is fascinating. The guy lives in Vegas, so he didn't fly into Vegas on a legion. He just bought his hotel and Raiders tickets from that. And I didn't know what this program was. So like you, I think I went to the Allegiant site and I said, you know, how do I buy Raiders tickets? <laughs> I actually Googled Allegiant Raiders tickets and like got a link. And I was shocked in a sense at just how ambiguous the wording in the Allegiant website was, right? They don't say you're going to be between these yard lines or obstructed or non-obstructed view. They talk in very general terms, like end zone, upper level, things like that. So while it's certainly possible, Josh, that you specifically bought something that they said was 50-yard line, even though I didn't see that offering when I looked, but maybe they had it when you bought, and you got end zone seats, right? If that happened, look, I bought 50 yard line, got end zone, then I think you have a legitimate complaint. But I'm guessing this is a wine, Chris, because I'm guessing what it was, was Josh's view of what he was going to get based on that very ambiguous wording in the Allegiant site. Um, He got disappointed because he had built in his mind an expectation of what that meant. And they sent him tickets that probably met the minimum definition of what they said. And that expectation mismanagement created this complaint. But I'm guessing it's a wine. And I think if you want great seats to any football game, probably the best place to get them is at StubHub or the NFL Exchange or something like that, because they'll tell you exactly the seat you're in. And you can go to the seat map of the stadium and look and say, yes, I want to sit there or I don't. Yeah, I had the same reaction. I was like, dude, why are you going to Allegiant to buy football tickets? So, um, <laughs> so, so I guess it's impressive that Allegiant has enough of a, a a name ID for their packages that people are are going to their site to buy non-airline products. But um, it's Las Vegas. The house always wins. So I'll just say that. So. <laughs> 
That's so. right. Well, and and Allegiant and Maury Gallagher know about selling <laughs> seats, right? So they're just selling a different That's kind right. of seat. <laughs> so it's a it's 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 an unassigned seat at the football game. So, That's right. So. As we wrap up the show, my shout out goes to Sun Country CEO Jude Bricker, who we're hoping to have on the show sometime soon too. At the Roots Americas conference, he made a very strong statement that traveling is becoming harder for passengers and specifically pointed out to things in the airports and the difficulty in getting rent-a-cars and other things. And he basically put out a call to airports and everyone in the travel ecosystem and said, we all need to work harder if we really want travel to come back to make it easier for passengers to navigate among the airlines, the rent-a-cars, the airports, and the hotels. And I thought it was a really good message, really well stated by Jude. Nice shout-out, Ben. And I'm going to give my shout-out to Jerry Dyer and his Big Jet TV YouTube channel. Listeners, if you haven't, please check it out. Jerry went from an aviation insider to a global celebrity with his play-by-play commentary of jets landing at London Heathrow during the Storm Eunice weather event in the UK last week. It was better entertainment than the Olympics or Premier League football slash soccer. If you haven't seen it, check it out. Big Jet TV on YouTube. I'm guessing his subscriber base has doubled after the performance last week. And as we say goodbye, we're going to leave you with some commentary from Jerry Dyer. Have a good week. Have a great week, everyone. Here we go. Come on, mate. You can do it. Come on, the Brits. Oh. Fair play, mate. That was skills. That was proper skills, that was. Yeah, we had more go-arounds than we had planes landing. (laughs) This podcast is produced by Mass Media. Info at massmedia.net.